Well, it's so good to reassemble with you this morning and to be able to um, look yet again at this subject of expository preaching, and I'm very excited to do this uh, with you. Um, let me just remind you, this is foundations, fundamentals of expository preaching, so we're just laying a very simple and basic foundation. Uh, I know that we're at different places and at different levels. Some of you are already preaching. Uh, others of you know that that's the call of God upon your life, and that door is not yet opened, and this is uh, the time for you to be prepared to do that. Uh, others of you will be professors and will be training expositors uh, in the Word of God. Uh, so we're at all at different places in this, but uh, what we're doing is just laying a, a, a foundation. Uh, for some of you, it, it may be just very... Um, simple to the point uh, you're ready for some more, and, and we're going to give you more. So that's coming. And uh, for others of you, this is just a necessary orientation to this. Uh, I want you to know, as I've gone back through all of this, and I am an expositor, I, I, I do this multiple times every week of my life, um, that this refreshes my own heart. I mean, this... Uh, uh, rekindles my own passion. This is why I'm on planet Earth. This is why I'm here. And so uh, it is good for my own soul to, to be reminded to walk back through this yet again. So I, I hope that it, it, it will have this effect uh, in your life. And my desire is that this end up not just on a computer screen or in a set of notes, but that this is really, truly being written upon your heart and that you own this, and that you will carry this with you for the rest of, of your life. And so I, I pray that, that this is an installment that, uh, that God is making uh, deep within you. So, um, as we're talking about foundations of preaching, fundamentals of expository preaching, yesterday we considered the meaning, uh, today we want to consider the marks. Yesterday, we looked at what it is not, and we looked at what it is. And today, we want to look at the marks of expository preaching, which will amplify the meaning, which will flesh out a little bit more um, what, our, uh, what, what expository preaching actually is. And just to underscore the importance of this, I want to begin with just this dramatic statement that every reformation in the history of the church and every great awakening and every true heaven-sent revival has been preceded by a return to expository preaching. There has never been a true work of God that is the result of just mysticism, uh, that is the result of just uh, some kind of hyper-emotionalism. Every true work of grace, every true uh, movement of God upon this planet has been birthed in the flames of expository preaching. Uh, there is a reason why in the Reformation, giants walked the land. And there were men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and and Zwingli, and Bullinger, and, 
And, and that's just in the continent. When you go to Scotland, men like John Knox and in England, uh, William Tyndale, and extraordinary men of God, they were all fiercely committed to the Word of God. And had they not been, uh, there would not have been the extraordinary impact upon the world. Uh, that impact lasts to this very day, and it is what has shaped Western civilization. That, that is a very strong statement. Um, the Reformation, each of the Reformers were preachers. Uh, they were not men just sitting in ivory towers writing treatises. Uh, they were not men just simply standing in a classroom lecturing. All of those are extraordinarily important. They were all men who mounted the pulpit and they preached the Word of God. They heralded the Word of God. And as I have studied these men, I am, I am astonished and encouraged that these men were expositors of the Word of God. There was substance to what they were saying. They were digging it out of the Scripture, and they were preaching the Bible. They were preaching the Word of God. And so what we are considering and what we are looking at is of great importance. J.H. Uh, Merrill Dubonnet, the great uh, historian of the Reformation, writes, quote, "...the only true Reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God." Close quote. So, if, if your ministry is going to have any kind of impact in this world, then it will come by the Word of God or it will not come at all. Everything that God is doing in this world, He is doing by His Word. God never works, the Spirit never works, independent of the Word of God. As the author of Scripture, He is fiercely committed to the book that he has authored. And so therefore, what we are discussing is of extraordinary importance. Uh, a set of, uh, uh, an eight-volume set of church history that I have found to be enormously helpful to me is written by Philip Schaff. It's called uh, A History of Christ the Christian Church. Volume 7 is called The German Reformation. It's about Luther. And at the beginning of volume 7, Philip Schaff, who was in the 19th century, a very noted church historian, has written this at the beginning. Every time I read this, it, it really does something to my own heart. Schaff writes, every true progress in church history. Let's just stop there. Ponder that. Every true progress in church history is conditioned by a new and deeper study of the Scripture. He said, while the humanists went back to the ancient classics, and he's talking about the Renaissance, while the humanists went back to the ancient classics and revived the spirit of Greek and Roman paganism, the Reformers went back to the sacred Scriptures in the original languages and revived the spirit of apostolic Christianity. They were fired by an enthusiasm for the gospel such as has, had, not, had never been known since the days of Paul. That's an extraordinary statement. 
And that is going to be true in your life, the church you pastor, the ministry that you're a part of. There will be no progress in your church or in your ministry apart from a return to a deeper study and a more faithful proclamation of the Word of God. Maybe one more quote before we begin to look at these marks. James Montgomery Boyce, we spoke of him yesterday, the great expositor from 10th Presbyterian, Philadelphia. In describing the Reformation, he said, Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. From the, from the very first, his emphasis was on Bible teaching. Calvin preached from the Bible every day. And under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's Word, they were changed by it. The city became, as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the new world. Well, what we need is out of this class is for God to raise up men who are equally committed to the Word of God. We may not be as gifted but we may be as committed to the Scripture as John Calvin. Yes? Yeah, be happy to. Uh, by Dubonnet. The only true Reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God. He has a six-volume set on the Reformation that is very helpful, and I extracted that quote from there. Okay. All right, well, let's begin to talk about the marks of expository preaching. Uh, true expository preaching will be found within the parameters of these marks. Number one, to start at the most basic elementary um, place, number one, expository preaching is text-driven. Expository preaching is rooted and grounded in a text or texts, plural, a scripture. We said yesterday it starts with a text, it stays with that text, it moves consecutively through that text, explaining it and applying it. And apart from that, it is not expository preaching. It says what the text says. It goes where the text goes, it teaches what the text teaches, it warns what the text warns, it rebukes what the text rebukes, it promises what the text promises. That is what it is to preach the Word, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Um, it is based upon our fundamental commitment to the Bible itself. And I want to give you just by way of remembrance, certain headings of our commitment to the Bible. And really, our commitment to expository preaching is simply the fruit of our commitment to the Bible, which is the root. It begins with, we believe, in the inspiration of Scripture, do we not? You wouldn't be at this school if you did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You would be living in self-delusion if you came to this school and you did not believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. Uh, it would be easier for you to join a sorority at, at some college campus 
than for you to come into this school and not believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is theonoustos, is God-breathed. Re really, the word is not inspiration, it's expiration. It is breathed out of the mouth of God. Uh, no other book in the world is inspired, only this book. Um, Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. So, we are committed to the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. That every word of written Scripture has proceeded out of the mouth of God. What the Bible says, God says. And God has spoken in His Word, and God continues to speak in His Word. God is speaking this present hour through His written Word. Second is our commitment to inerrancy. That the Scripture in the original autographs is without error. Uh, Titus 1-2 says, it is impossible for God to lie. You know what that means? It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says the same. It is impossible for God to lie. If the Bible is inspired, it must be inerrant, or error and falsehood would be laid at the feet of God, and He would no longer be holy. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them by your word. Your word is what? Truth. Truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. It's the picture of putting a, a precious metal into a furnace, heating the furnace such that there is a separation that occurs with that precious metal. The impurities rise to the surface, and they are dredged off the surface, leaving behind only the precious metal without any imperfections. That is what that text says, that the Word of God has been, in essence, put into the divine furnace such that there are no impurities in it. It is a flawless, blemishless book. Therefore, whenever we preach the Word of God, we are speaking the unvarnished truth of God, the unadulterated truth of God. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. We are also committed to the infallibility of the Word of God, that whatever God has said in His Word will come to pass. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades away, but the Word of our God abides forever. Every promise will come to pass. Every judgment will come to pass. It is no idle threatenings that God makes when He issues His warnings in Scripture. Though the fulfillment of them may, may be delayed, there is the inevitability that every jot, every tittle is infallible and will come to pass. 
Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Just even one stroke. In, in the English language, it would be like what separates a lowercase l from a lowercase t is just one stroke, that one horizontal stroke. Jesus is saying every little stroke and every, uh, every pointing is inspired by God. It is infallible. Jesus said in John 10, 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. We affirm the authority of Scripture because it is inspired. It is the word of the living God because it is inerrant. Every word is true. And because it is infallible, it will all come to pass. Therefore, the Scripture speaks with supreme authority. Luther said that the pulpit becomes the throne by which God rules and reigns over His church. It has the right to rule over the church, over the elders, over the pastor, over the preacher, over the con life of the congregation. Everyone is under the authority of Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law, it is the law of the Lord. Not His suggestions, not His options, nor opinions. It is divine law that is binding upon the conscience and upon the life of everyone. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, This we say to you by the word of the Lord. That's, at the, that's the heart of expository preaching. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Um, therefore, as we stand to preach, we, we, we don't whimper, we, we don't stutter, um, we, we don't apologize, um, we, we don't say, let me give you a few thoughts, uh, let, me, let me offer some suggestions today. Um, no, we speak as a herald who has been dispatched from the throne of God. We come as an ambassador of the Lord, and we may speak only what has been entrusted to us. We may not add to that message. We may not take away from that message. Neither may we hold back any portion of that message. To be a faithful steward of what has been entrusted to us, we must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We are committed to not only sola scriptura, but tota scriptura, which is all of Scripture. We also believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is clear, that it is lucid. This was one of the driving issues of the Reformation in the 16th century. Rome said that the Bible is not clear, therefore only the Pope can interpret it. The, the Pope will tell you what this means. Um, the common man is too stupid to understand the Bible. And the, the, the ecclesiastical hierarchy will interpret the Bible for you. And the Reformers were in total juxtaposition to that. They said, no, the Bible is a lucid, clear book. God knows how to communicate. God knows how to speak. And, and God has condescended to come down to our level. Calvin and his institutes argues that, that God has spoken on a kindergarten level to us 
in the Scripture such that we can have understanding of what God has said. This is very clear. Uh, Jesus, for example, um, in Matthew 22, verse 31, uh, said, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? As Jesus addressed the Pharisees, do you have two eyeballs? Do you have two brain cells that are connecting with each other? Can you not read? Do you need to go back to kindergarten and be taught how to read? Because if you are breathing, and if you can read, then you would know what the Scripture says. And any limitation is not on the part of the Scripture. The limitation would be upon the blindness of the eyes of men and the deafness of the ears of men, but there is absolutely no limitation upon the Scripture. If anything is clear, it is what God says in His Word. And the Reformers were so committed to this that they believed that in, that, that in doctrinal matters that are essential to the church, that there will be unanimity among true believers regarding these essential tenets of the faith. Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus said, Have you not read Matthew 12 and verse 5? Have you not read in the law? The implication of that is, if you have, then you would know. Such, therefore, as we stand to preach the Bible, we are not preaching over the heads of people. This is not some cognitive movement that we now are intellectual elites and that because we have gone to school, we have some higher knowledge that other people cannot attain to. So therefore, we need to preach out of the newspaper or we need to preach uh, uh, in such a way that the common man will be able to understand us and we hold back expository preaching no, the limitation would be with us that we have muddied what is absolutely clear in the Bible. If we will simply open the book and preach the Bible, people will, by the aid of the Spirit of God, understand what it is that we are saying. Further, there is the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Scripture is able to do all that God intends within His will. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you will give yourself to the study of the Word of God in these years that are before you, you will be adequate. You will be equipped to have a ministry that will be owned by heaven and have great effect upon this world. When I went to seminary, I went to seminary not to get a degree. I went to seminary to be taught because I did not grow up in a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. I, I knew very little about the Bible. I had no experience uh, of being with pastors or being in uh, much in churches other than a, a liberal church. But as a result of my time in seminary and men giving me the tools by the time I graduated, I was made um, able and I was equipped to go out and to have a lifetime of ministry. There has been growth and there has been development 
over these years. But the Word of God is so sufficient that if you will master this book, and if this book will master you, you will be prepared to be used by the Lord. Also, the Scripture is immutable. The immutability of the Scripture, that it never changes. It is forever the same. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That's a pretty long time, and that's a pretty high place. Psalm 119, verse 160, Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. After I graduated from college, I went to law school. I, I studied law, and what drove me crazy was I would study case law, and I would memorize it, I would commit myself to it, and my entire grade was simply the final exam at the end of the semester. Nothing else. It was the final exam. And law that I had memorized in September and August and October, by the time the final exam came in December, some of those laws had been overruled. And it so frustrated me that I would wake up early, I would stay up late, I would sacrifice weekend trips, I would not watch ball games, I would do all of these things to devote myself to study law that is changing. And at that same time, I was also beginning to preach and beginning to go out and to stand up before groups of people and to teach and preach the Word of God. And it became the greatest comfort and encouragement to me that every millisecond that I invested in studying the Word of God is with me throughout the entirety of my time here upon the earth. And that what I would preach at age 30 would be what I would preach at age 40, would be what I would preach at age 50, would be what I would preach at age 60, that nothing would change over the years. There, there, there would be... There would be no new books added. There would be nothing taken away. Uh, there would be no editing that would need to be done. That my investment of time and the blood, sweat, toil, and tears, the hard work, the hard labor to study the Bible, I would have it the rest of my life. It's the immutability of Scripture. So because of all of these reasons... There is a mandate that is laid at our feet that we would preach the Bible. God has promised that He will honor His Word. And God will honor the man who honors His Word. If you will honor the Word of God, the smile of heaven will be upon you as you go forth to minister His Word. At the end, uh, not at the end, but as the Reformation was being birthed and was unfolding, I mean, th there was no plan, there was no five-year plan, ten-year plan. It, it, every day was like uh, uh, waking up in a new world as, the, as the, the flame of the Reformation was spreading through Europe. And someone came to Luther and said, how can you explain the Reformation? Kingdoms are tottering. The papacy is being weakened. Um, 
the entire continent is undergoing change. How do you explain this? This is what Luther said. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted so much damage. I did nothing. The Word did it all. If you will go forth from here and just preach and teach the Word of God and instill it into the lives of other people and go to sleep, God will work and God will spread that Word. I did nothing. The Word did it all. All right, this first hallmark, text-driven. Um, let's talk about some kinds of expository preaching. There are different flavors, different, different approaches to expository preaching. We talked about different men yesterday. Uh, let me just give you the different kinds of expository preaching. Number one is sequential exposition. By sequential, we mean consecutive exposition, moving verse by verse through entire books in the Bible. And I want to say, this should be the meat and potatoes of every expository pulpit. There is a place for a dessert, and there is a place for a salad. But let the dessert always be the dessert. The meat and potatoes is the verse-by-verse, -verse, sequential, consecutive exposition, verse-by-verse, -verse, through books in the Bible, where you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and you move consecutively throughout the entire book. You cannot skip any section. You cannot leave any verse unaddressed. God sets the menu. God has already established a healthy balance within His books that are within the Bible, and if you will simply preach through each verse in a book, it ensures that the full counsel of God will be preached, that every truth will be taught, every sin exposed, every promise delivered, every invitation extended. No hard sayings can be avoided. No controversy can be skirted. No difficult text can be unaddressed. And so this is really what should be at the heart and soul of every expository ministry is the verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture. It will deepen the life of the congregation. It will deepen the life of the preacher. It will model how to study the Word of God. It will address the full gambit of truth that needs to be addressed over time. That is number one. The second, as we're talking about text-driven exposition, not only sequential, the second would be sectional exposition. And this would take a section within a book in the Bible and then simply move verse by verse through that section. So the entire, the entire book would not be covered, but a section within that book. For example, 
it is possible to preach the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. That is a self-contained literary unit. And there, that would make for powerful, life-changing preaching of the Word of God. You could take the Upper Room Discourse, John 13, verse 16. But you would apply everything else that we are saying to move verse by verse through John 13 through verse 16. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, another example. Um, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 etc., etc. So I think we have the idea uh, on that. The third would be what we would call topical or thematic exposition, where you take a particular truth that is in the Bible and you trace it out to all of the various texts. For example, you could preach a sermon on repentance and gather together the signature verses in the key texts and they're like individual pearls, and you put them on a strand, and they become a necklace. They become a, a beautiful sermon, as you show from the Old Testament, then in the preaching of John the Baptist, then in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, then in the preaching of Peter at, on the day of Pentecost, and you just keep trailing this out to the, to the ministry of Paul, the meaning of repentance, and, and the, the necessity of repentance, and the marks of repentance. Uh, etc. Um, I preached last Sunday in my church. I, I'm preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and I, I just needed to have a time out because we've been in it for almost three years. And so let me just preach an, an, a standalone sermon. So I, I preached a, a very obtuse text, uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcise your hearts and no longer be stiff-necked. And it was an evangelistic message. And I traced out the doctrine of circumcision, but that your heart would be circumcised, would be cut by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, and that you would be set apart to God. And, and, and it's a, a metaphor for the new birth, to be born again. And, and so I traced that from the Old Testament into the New Testament, a circumcision not with hands, but a circumcision by the Spirit, uh, a circumcision of the heart. So it, it was, it, I, it's probably one of the most biblical sermons I've ever preached in my life. Uh, going to Jeremiah, going to Ezekiel, go to Romans, went to Philippians, went to Colossians, traversed the entirety of, of Scripture. Fourth would be a biographical exposition. Before I give you the biographical, one other thought on the topical or thematic. Um, another way to do it, and it's very expositional. Um, I, I have preached on the doctrines of grace out of the Gospel of John. And the first message is radical corruption and just move chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John and give the ten um, images of total depravity that are in the Gospel of John. Second message, I preached unconditional election, sovereign election as taught in the Gospel of John. The third lesson, 
definite atonement, particular atonement, and just work my way through the Gospel of John and pull together all of the verses that address the definite death that Christ died for us, and then irresistible grace, and then preserving grace. That is another way to uh, teach expositionally. It's called biblical theology. Systematic theology is you work the entire Bible. A biblical theology is you confine yourself to a book or to an author on a particular uh, doctrine. All right, number four would be bi biographical exposition. We're talking about text-driven as the first mark of expository preaching. And so a fourth way would be to take an individual in the Bible and preach either sequentially through the section that pertains to his life. An example of that would be, let's say, Joseph, uh, Genesis 37 through 50, or Abraham, Genesis 11 through 26. So, to isolate an individual and preach consecutively through those chapters, or to do a study like the Twelve Disciples. And we've all read Dr. MacArthur's book on, on Twelve Ordinary Men. What a phenomenal study that, that, that was, life-changing for anyone who would read that book. And to take Peter, and to take uh, John, and to take Matthew, and to take Andrew, and, just, and then open it up to wherever those men are addressed in other portions of Scripture. It was a very expository message. It was biographical. And then fifth would be just a single standalone exposition, just an isolated message that is rooted and grounded in a passage of Scripture. And that is what I will usually do at Christmas or Easter, um, is to isolate a text and preach that text. It's not in a part of a larger series. Uh-huh. The sectional uh, is very simple. The, the sectional is a section. And so it's like three chapters. Um, I, I, I wouldn't recommend necessarily doing that in one sermon, but I, I guess it's possible. Um, um, this would be confined to five verses, four verses. And the sectional is a series. So maybe I didn't make that clear. The sectional is a series. This is an isolated, single, standalone message. And that's what you end up doing at a funeral. Uh, that's what you end up doing if you're a guest preacher someplace. That's what you end up doing if you're an associate pastor and you're not normally the one in the pulpit and the pastor is out of town and he's asked you to preach on his behalf and you're, you're, it's almost like you're parachuted into uh, the pulpit and you are to give one message. And so you can't preach the Gospel of John in, in, in one message. <laughs> um, you are best to isolate a passage of Scripture and work your way consecutively through it. So, uh, any other question? Yeah. Yeah, Spurgeon, who is one of my all-time heroes. Spurgeon would just take... Sometimes he wouldn't even take an entire verse. He would just take a, a, a 
prepositional phrase out of a verse. And, and he would just work it every way it, it could be worked. And admittedly, at times, he would bring things into this from other verses. Like I said, he was really just a systematic theologian preaching through that, that, that particular uh, passage. But it is amazing. Uh, I have all 63 volumes of Spurgeon sermons, and, and I've read a lot of them. Um, each volume has the best 50 sermons that he preached that year and doesn't even come close to contain all the sermons that he preached in a given year. And um, in those sermons, I mean, he will take a verse or maybe two verses, and I mean, he was just a master outliner. And he could just, it was said he had a golden hammer. And he could just strike a text, and it would just break out into the divisions. And he was very much of a Puritan preacher. He's been called the heir of the Puritans, the last Puritan. And the Puritans were known for the, the structure of their outlines. They, they were very precise thinkers about Scripture. And so they were easy to follow. They were easy to listen to. And so there, there would be the, the character. There would be the consequences. The, the, there would be the conditions. And then they would have subheadings, and it would be A, B, C, D, E, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then A, B, C, D. That's a Spurgeon sermon. And so he's under the influence of, of the Puritans. And, and so he would take that verse and, and just almost like a sentence diagram, just break out its parts, and then un, and the subheadings would be he would just unleash that extraordinary theological mind and also his powers of Victorian communication and um, in those sermons, um, he's the most published individual on any subject in the world. You know, they would sell them on the street corners, you know, the penny pulpit. But uh, anyway, but that's what Spurgeon did, yeah. And there is a place and there is a time for that. I, I would not recommend that as the meat and potatoes. If you did, because there's no verse in the Bible that would restrict you, if you did, you would need to have the genius of Spurgeon. And you would need to have the brilliance of his powers of communication to pull it off. A anyone else? So someone else? Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, it's, it starts with the text and explains the text and then makes application. The whole felt need approach is that it, it turns preaching on its head. It becomes everything is upside down. We begin with a superficial felt need and then we go look for eight verses to throw at it and proof text those, and those would be out of eight different versions or translations of the Bible, and, 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 it's, and it's, it's more of a mongrel approach. I mean, what you have is kind of like a hot dog. 
just all the leftover, whatever that is, just kind of jammed in and throw some flavor in it. And it's the flavor that sells the, the hot dog. And, 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 and really, that's the deal. It's, 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 it's not the steak, it's the sizzle that, that sells that kind of preaching. Yeah? Yeah, it's a great question. Jonathan Edwards was also uh, an heir of the Puritans, and some people would call him the last Puritan. Uh, Jonathan Edwards would be like Spurgeon. He would just take an isolated text, and he would have the same outline for, for every, basically every sermon. There are some exceptions. Um, you know, the, the, the teaching, then he would have the doctrine, and then he would have the application. That's very Puritan. And, um, and, and the, 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 the great quote about Edwards is that as he was, those first two sections on the teaching and the doctrine, meaning like the theology, it was said he was just getting his canons into place. <laughs> and then with the application, he fired those canons. <laughs> and that many preachers never get, they get the cannon in place, they get the gunpowder into the cannon, I mean, they get it fodded and the whole thing, they just never light the fuse and get to the U in the sermon. But, but Edwards would, would be very puritanical. The only verse-by-verse preaching that he ever did it was 1 Corinthians 13. He preached verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 13. It was the only time he ever confined himself. Um, so we're all the, the, the product of influences and in the times in which we live and the people who are around us. And um, that was very much a practice in that day. So sinners in the hand of an angry God, you know, his text, their foot shall slide in due time. I mean, how do you get sinners in the hand of an angry God out of their foot shall slide in due time? Well, in the larger context, it, you, we can see it, but you have to be a theological genius and have master communication skills for people to be hanging on to the edge of the pew <laughs> for fear they're going to slide into hell. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. The only difference between those five approaches is how you select the text to start with. Mm -hmm. After that, everything is the same. We, we will apply, I don't, I don't know that I would say everything is the same, but we will apply the same principles to pull together a sermon. We'll be back together in January, and um, we'll have morning and afternoon, and that'll be the mechanics of preaching. And we'll go through those. 20 however many steps and stages, and that, that really is the overlay for basically any expository message. So in that sense, yes, it's, it's all the same. There are some differences with just even different genres of literature. Yeah, good. A anyone else? Okay. Uh, Text-driven. Um, maybe just, just one more quote. I've got tons of quotes here, but maybe just one more quote. Walt Kaiser, 
uh, in Toward an Exegetical Theology, writes, what separates topical preaching from expository preaching. And now we're admitting that there is a topical exposition. But when he says topical preaching, he's talking about the garden variety preaching of what's out there in most churches. Read a verse and you just hardly ever hear from it again. What separates topical preach, preaching from expository preaching is that expository preaching unwaveringly begins and remains with the biblical text throughout the whole sermon. Rather than beginning with a human need or concern as the impetus for the sermon, the expository sermon deliberately reverses the action and has the sermon originate in the exposition of the biblical text itself. Exposition starts with the biblical text and holds fast to that text throughout the sermon. So, it is text-driven. Number two, it is God-exalting. The chief purpose of expository preaching is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. There is no pinnacle higher than the promotion and the exaltation of the glory of God. People should leave our sermons being overwhelmed with the awesomeness of God. People almost ought to be, have to walk out into the parking lot and just sit down for a moment because they are overwhelmed with the majesty and the transcendence and the grace of God. Uh, John Piper argues that as we are expositors, we should be exaltational expositors, always exalting God in our preaching. The, the main thrust of the Word of God is the God of the Word. So we should be constantly lifting up His greatness, promoting His glory, unveiling His grandeur. Psalm 96 verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's the kind of preaching that uh, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. I, I just happened to look at it in preparing for this and just looking at it again. And I just took a pen and, and just drew a circle around every time when God is the speaker and I and me and my in Peter's sermon, and then transitioning out of the text, how many times he just says God. I mean, it was a God-dominating sermon. I will pour forth of my Spirit. I will grant wonders in the skies. Jesus, a man attested to you by God, by miracles and wonders and signs which God performed. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But God raised him up having been exalted to the right hand of God. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel uh, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This promise is for you and your children, and as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. It's just God, 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 God. There is no greater subject. There is no higher thrust. There is no loftier trajectory for any sermon that we will ever preach, then the magnification and the exaltation of God. B.B. Warfield was once asked to comment on 
the greatness of John Calvin's ministry, and he said it's easy. The greatness of Calvin's ministry and the greatness of his influence is simply that Calvin emphasized the greatness of God. He said here we have the secret of Calvin's greatness and the source of his strength unveiled to us. No man ever had a profounder sense of God than he. Other men were more entertaining in the pulpit. Other men were more winsome. Other men had better bedside manners. Uh, other men have been better this or that, this or that, but no one ever had a more profound sense of God than he. I don't know how gifted you are by the Lord. Um, other men may be more gifted than you. But we all stand on level ground as far as having a profound sense of God dominate our lives and our ministries. I was with Sinclair Ferguson not long ago, and we were preaching at a conference, and he was talking about the sovereignty of God, and he was talking about an, uh, a colonial Puritan, Thomas Hooker, and he said, there was such such a transcendence of God that just towered over his pulpit that Sinclair said. He said, it was as if when Thomas Hooker stood in the pulpit, people said of Hooker that he could just pick up a king and stuff him in his pocket. That's a long way from felt need preaching. <laughs> a long way that you just tower over your times and tower over the nation and tower over the continent because you stand upholding God. Just pick up a king and stuff him in your pocket. We've all read the beginning of Piper's book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. I think we, we all almost have memorized the opening paragraph in the introduction to that book. People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. They are far, there are far more popular prescriptions on the market. But the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me your glory. He said, my burden is to plead for the supremacy of God in preaching, that the dominant note of preaching be the freedom of God's sovereign grace. The unifying thing be the zeal that God has for His own glory. The grand object of preaching be the infinite and inexhaustible being of God and the pervasive atmosphere be the holiness of God. I mean, we, we should be known as big God preachers. Maybe you've heard the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was at 10th Presbyterian, a predecessor of Boyce. He was a graduate of Princeton, and one day he was asked to come back to Princeton to preach in chapel which is always somewhat of a humbling experience to return to the very school and to have the professors who trained you sit on the front row and listen to you preach. 
after they have already critiqued you and gone through all of the labors. And so, um, Barnhouse comes to St. Andrew's Chapel, if you've ever been to that chapel there at Princeton, and um, actually that would be Miller Chapel, Samuel Miller, there at the seminary, Princeton. St. Andrew's is at the university. And there on the front row were all the faculty. He gets up to preach, and in the middle of the sermon, Robert Dick Wilson, a man who said to be proficient in like 17 languages. We're just working on English, aren't we? <laughs> in the middle of the sermon, stands up and walks out from the front row. Barnhouse said, I, I could barely finish the message. I, I was shattered. I was devastated. Robert Dick Wilson exiting during my sermon. The sermon was over, the polite things people would say. He, he makes a beeline for Professor Wilson's office, and he said, where did I fail? What did I do wrong? He said, I always come back to hear my men preach one time. And all I want to know is, are you a big God preacher? And he said, sir, I only needed 10 minutes to know that you are a big God preacher. And that's all I needed to hear. Consider it a compliment that I didn't need to hear any more of your sermon. That needs to be true of every one of us. And that is the total antithesis of felt need preaching. We need to be dominated by the attributes of God, the perfections of God, the being of God, the triunity of God, the eternal decree of God, the providence of God. I, I agree with R.C. Sproul, who said, theology proper is to be the paradigm and the grid through which we read the entire rest of the Bible, through which we see everything by which we have a Christian worldview. Everything needs to be seen through the prism, the lens of theology proper. I don't know who teaches theology proper here, and I don't know which class you'll be in. But whatever that class is, you need to show up early and be the last one out of the room when class is over. Because for the rest of your life, you need to be a big God preacher. And you need to hang on to everything that is said in that class. What struck me when I was in seminary, when I was in your position... I remember going to the bookstore, and I pulled a book off of the shelf that just blew me away. I've never seen a book like this before. Just by reading the table of contents, I was more edified than reading entire books that I had read before then. It was the first Banner of Truth book that was ever printed. It's called Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson in which he preached through the Westminster Confession. 
And as you read the table of contents, it's like a two-page table of contents. In page one, the perfections of God, the being of God, the attributes of God, the triunity of God, the providence of God, the eternal decree of God. I mean, it's just God, 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 God. Turn the page, and it's the whole rest of the theology. That, that, was, that, that was an introduction for me into exaltational exposition. It's interesting. Spurgeon, wrote, actually, Spurgeon actually wrote the foreword to the book. Obviously, Spurgeon came much later in history. And he did a little biographical survey or overview of Thomas Watson's life. He was a Puritan, put out of his pulpit in the Great Ejection of 1662, which, by the way, is August 24th, which will be on Friday. It's one of the red-letter days of all church history, August 24th. Um, and he said, Thomas Watson died in his prayer closet. And as only Spurgeon could say, he said, he just went from glory to glory. Spurgeon said he may not have even known if he died. <laughs> How can you be that good in saying things? He just went from the presence of God to the presence of God. <laughs> I, and this is in preaching I mean it's, it's not just we're going to give you some techniques on how to do snappy introductions every one of us in this room we're going to have to dig a deep well into the being and the person of God and come to a very intimate growing personal real authentic knowledge of God and we preach out of the overflow of our experience of God. Um, and, and, you know, one thing, there are many advantages to the computers that everyone now uses. For you, you can just almost bing, do a word study, bing, do the cross-references, bing, just pull this little paragraph out of this commentary, bing, and, and all of a sudden you just like have the whole thing wired for you. It's like, wow. And just bypass the whole process of having, with some sense of desperation, under the right hand of God, to dig this out of the Word and go through the process, because it's the process that draws you close to the fire where you walk with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we're under God-exalting exposition. Martin Lloyd-Jones asserts, what is the chief end of preaching? I would like to know what the doctor says is the chief end of preaching. I like to think it is this. It is to give men and women a sense of God. Lloyd-Jones says, preaching is first of all a proclamation of the being of God. Preaching worthy of the name starts with God and with a declaration concerning His being, His power, His glory. J.I. Packer, when he was a young man, 22 years old, was in London as a student and he would go to Westminster 
chapel to hear Lloyd-Jones preach. And some 50 years later, Packer reflected upon hearing the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, I never heard such preaching. He said it came with the force of an electrical shock. He said, bringing more of a sense of God than any man I've ever heard. He said, I have never known anyone whose speech communicated such a sense of the reality of God as did the doctor. So therefore, expository preaching must be first and foremost vertical before it is horizontal. Felt need preaching is horizontal and never gets really to the vertical. And being all vertical, it is shallow and superficial. The profundity is in the vertical. Expository preaching is first heavenly before it is earthly. It is first Godward in focus before it is human in focus. Have you read The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin? I would encourage you at some point in your life to read The Institutes of the Christian Religion. as he makes his case for Christianity. It went through five revisions. Calvin had only been a Christian for less than two years when he wrote it. He wrote it when he was 25 and 26 years old. it became a theological tour de force. This 26-year-old kid, he's only been a Christian less than two years. And in his presentation, he wrote it, it's addressed to the king of France, who are murdering and martyring the Huguenots the Reformed believers in France, meaning the true believers in France. And Calvin addresses this to the king. And he says, in, in really most eloquent language, King, you are such a, a great and noble king that if you only knew what true Christianity is, I know you to be so noble that you would put an end to the slaughtering. This is what true Christianity is. Now, it would be expanded over the years. But he begins, what is true Christianity? He begins, it is, it starts at this point, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And Calvin says, you cannot know yourself until you first know God. 
It's only as you draw near to the light can you even see yourself. And you remain in the darkness until you see that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. It's the way it is in our preaching. There has to be the knowledge of God before there can be the knowledge of man. Before there can be application. Before there can be exhortation. Before there can be implication. There must be the truth of God made known. 